Would you please welcome a friend of us all, Mr. Heath Common. <laughs> and my uh, my new best friend, <laughs> Chris Elwich. Thank you. Hey. Okay, it's great to be back. I can say hand on heart, and you know I'm not being pretentious, it's a fact. A load, load of people in here I consider to be friends, so it's always great to come back and see you. And you're from my territory, Normanton. It's great to be back. And that's significant because Chris is a great friend of honor, my wife, Honor, is a great friend of ours. He's staying with us again tonight. And... Um, I'd like you to see this, if I can say this, almost in this context, that you sat in this pub and somebody comes to you and says, you never guess who sat over there. Who? Chris Salvich, you know, that bloke who's a mate of Bob Marley's. You're joking. He sat there with that bloke who comes to a cat club sometimes. <laughs> Seriously. I'll tell you what, let's listen in to what he says. Let's listen to what he says. Let's see if that bloke, i.e. me, allows him to talk and talk at length. And then if he shuts up, we might have a chance to talk to him ourselves and ask him a load of questions. Hey, that'd be a good night, wouldn't it? Yeah. Right. That's the context that we're going for tonight. One last thing to say before I start. I'm content, and I said this to Chris driving down here, I'm conscious that Rev, very wisely, has started this season ticket system. And one consequence of that, in my opinion, I'm not saying it's fact, is that not everything you come to on a season ticket, you know loads about before you arrive. You're just thinking, well, I'll go and see what's happening. So please don't think that so many questions tonight, you're thinking, we know that already. Because I'm conscious of the fact that some people in here are thinking, I don't know that much about Bob Marley, but I'd like to learn more. So don't you assume, Heath Common, that we know loads about him. Give us a chance to know everything about him and ask the right questions. So that's my prelude tonight. I hope you're in some agreement with me. So you're sat with me, Chris, in the corner of the pub, and somebody says, does that Chris Salvis bloke over there? Let's have a listen to what he says. You know something? We've got a bloke tonight. If you accept, as I do, that Bob Marley was one of the great icons of the 20th century, undoubtedly, alongside Lennon, Robert Johnson, who we saw a moment ago, I don't need to tell you, you know I'm on, all I'm on about. This bloke knew him. This bloke knew him as a mate. Hey, Chris, you know that bloke you used to know, Bob Marley? Tell us something about him. How did you first meet him? I first met Bob. <laughs> in, in February, it's quite late. I'd been to see him many times. I thought Bob and the Whalers were fantastic. And in fact, when they played at the Speakeasy Club in London, the first time they came over, it was kind of the, the sort of rock band Whalers, as it were, with Peter Tosh and, and Buddy Ware. I went three times to see them at the Speakeasy Club. The Catch a Fire album, which they're about to... Re it's the 50th anniversary of Catch a Fire this year, and they're about to relaunch it, actually. Uh, I thought it was sensational. Um, so I was a, I studied, you know, Bob, and I went to see him lots of times, and they're going to gonna show some stuff from the Rainbow Shows, which is 77... Uh, June 77 in a, in a minute and I went to two of those shows I went to the Lyceum I went to Babylon by bus but this is like no this still that's before I've met Paul so anyway I, I first went to Jamaica I was riding for the NME I go to Jamaica in uh, uh, February 1978 and I go because uh John Lydon has been sent down there by Richard Branson to hide him away and also after the pistols have broken up and also to sign people to Virgin's reggae label. Uh, and he's gone there with, with uh, uh, Don Letts, and, who I've know, met a little bit by then, and, and Dennis Morris, the photographer, 
Vivian Goldman, the writer, Kate Simon, the photographer, people I know. And I think, this seems a good scene to me. I'd better get on this. And I had a little bit of money at the time, so I bought myself a ticket and went. And um, so I had an amazing experience in Jamaica. And it was life-changing stuff, as you might expect. And like when you go in circumstances like that, you've got open access. You know? And so like two days after... I'm there, I'm with Scratch Perry in his yard at Black Art Studios, you know, I'm with the, the, the gladiators. Tapazuki takes me to Trenchtown for the first time. And, and I meet Tosh, I meet lots of spear, lots of stuff goes on. It's amazing, it's like, it really is life-changing stuff. So I would come back, I write it all. I stayed in Port Antonio, I went on the north coast and wrote it all. Big pieces of the enemy. Okay, so I've got those pieces. And then... So, good karma, I paid for myself to go. And so, a year later, literally February 79, Island Records is doing a little bit of junket on uh, Inner Circle. So, and then they send me on this, and I get on this. And I wake up the first day at the Sheraton Hotel, as I've been, you know, the Clash tune, you know, Natty Dread at the Sheraton Hotel, which was kind of like the uptown place where all the kind of, top rankings would meet, you know, and then, and it was kind of, and Jamaica is in a state of civil war, of course. This is a good backdrop. It's good to know this. So um, I wake up, you know, jet-lagged, I wake up early, and I think, so I better go and do this, OK? I heard Bob gets up early. So I get into a, a cab, and I, Morris Oxford cab, as they were in those days, trundles up Hope Road, 56 Hope Road, Bob's headquarters, I just go in, basically, and no one, there's no security or anything. And in the distance over there, there's this woman in, with dreadlocks and a besom broom and uh, ankle-length uh, skirt sweeping up. And it's front of what's obviously a record company, like a record store. So I talk to her and I show her the pieces I've written. And she turns out to be a woman called Diane Jobson, who's actually Bob's... Uh, it's an in-house lawyer and also a, a former lover, or perhaps not even former, I don't know. But uh, Anyway, she becomes a good friend of mine, and her brother, Dickie Jobson, who makes the film Countryman, All right. a few years later, also is a very good friend. Anyway, I'm talking to her, and suddenly this, you know, the inevitable BMW purrs in, you know, the golden green Ethiopian flag flying and at black windows... Well, the window is, is, is dropped down on the driver's seat. And it's a very beautiful girl driving it. Who's was actually Judy Moat, one of the I3. Right. So anyway, Bob gets out. That's, it isn't it, in fact, he. So, so, and there's this kind of tough-looking kind of ghetto youth there. I noticed this uh, earlier when I come in. And um, he goes and talks to them. And I leave him a minute and I approach him. The first, what's the first thing I noticed about Bob Marley? He's tiny. He's about five foot four. Family man, the bass player, turns out to be about five foot two. He looks huge on stage, doesn't he? But anyway, it's like, you kind of think it's like, you know, third world diet, you know? Anyway, I show him the pieces that I've written. And uh, Bob's genuinely interested and starts to read them. And then he does exactly what Bob Marley's supposed to do. She hands me a spliff, freshly rolled spliff, which I take and I nervously take a few hits on it. <laughs> Could have my fatal error. Um, not quite, luckily. But anyway, so he reads the... He's, he's genuinely reading these pieces, which have got great layouts, actually. I remember, you know, it was called... called uh, uh, Jamaica, the Young Lion Roars was the first... From the enemy. From the enemy, yeah, you know, yeah, and I'm yeah. giving him them. Anyway, yeah. um... But then he says, we have to go somewhere. We have to go, and there's a minibus over there. And they go and get in this minibus. And he's getting in the minibus. He says, come with us, come with us, yeah. come with us. So, okay, great. Well, you know, okay. uh, <laughs> and, and I go, and we're sitting next to each other in a bench seat in this minibus, and Bob's knees touching mine, and he's, he's smoking a split. And I say, we go to Russia, traffic, chug, chug, chug. And, and, and I said, where are we going? He says, Gun Corps, man. Okay. Gun Corps was uh, a product of, of Prime Minister Michael Manley's Emergency Powers Act of 1975, and anyone found with any part of a gun 
It was like a, it was in prison there, and I'd seen pictures of it. It looked like a concentration camp. But anyway, I was in prison there for either indefinite detention or and or execution. And I say, "Why are we going there?" See, we see a button, man, him lock up. Okay. Chug, chug, chug. <laughs> so we're kind of going through this uptown area called Beverly Hills, actually. And then, but then suddenly we are ushered through these piss-stinking corridors, you know, and into an upstairs, and it's into we're into, you know, what looks like the, the it looks like the study of a boarding school headmaster, which is the governor's office, who sat there behind a big wooden, you know, uh, mahogany wooden desk. And there's, a, there's wooden chairs in, in a semicircle and put yeah. in front of it, which we sit down in, and I'm sort of sitting next to Bob and these other guys. And so it, what it is, is it's, it's, it's a guy called Michael Bernard, who is, who's then brought in, who's a course celebrator. Who's who's actually the brother of one of Bob's mates, uh, uh, and there's, there's some of these youth. There's a guy called Tech Life with us, T E K Life, which is not because actually so you think oh that's because he goes around killing people. No, actually it's a there's a Jamaican dark twist. It's because his mother died in childbirth, giving him birth. So. Oh, Anyway, so I'll just give you some context oh, here. God. So anyway, there's lots of questions are asked, and and I think it's going to be, this is Bob Marley, it's going to be like tub-thumping, you know, finger-wagging. No, it's all very, very, very hushed voices. It's all very quiet. Everyone's a little bit nervous, including the governor himself. Bob's trying to get this guy out. He's trying to get the guy out. That's I mean, what's going on. Is there any chance of a retrial, etc., etc.? You know what's yeah, going on? And it's all kind of a bit uncertain and, you know, no one is really saying anything, really. Yeah. And we're probably there for about 15, 20 minutes yeah. and then suddenly we seems to be, we're leaving and I'm a bit confused what's going on. And Michael Bernard, Paul goes over and says, hello, shakes hands with Michael Bernard, he leaves, blah, blah. So anyway, we, we leave and we go back to 36 Hope Road. And I just fall asleep on it immediately because obviously it's a shock, <laughs> a jet lag and the spliff. And I fall asleep on a bench underneath his mango tree. But Bob sort of says, oh, stick around, you know, hang around. And so that night I go to some rehearsals and, you know, then, then but I'm there for about another three weeks. And then we just spend a bit of time together. I've interview him a couple of times. We took, you know, we, we I go to recording, a recording session, more rehearsals, see him hanging out. You know, there was a 12 tribes dance up in the hills. Yeah. And um, one thing that really impressed me was like when I'm leaving, you know, I, I want to get a, get a few more quotes from him for something I'm not going to write. And so I'm going to, I was going to New York, that was it. So I've got my kind of overcoat and I've got my suitcase. And I put them down because I'm going to come. And he's at 56 Hope Road, and there's a, it has this awning in front of it. You know, it's like one of those old colonial houses. Oh, yeah. So you know, there's and it's to protect you from the sun. And like, I put my stuff down, and Bob comes up, picks up my coat and my suitcase, and takes it under the awning, so it won't get the bleached by the sun. I was very impressed by that. Yeah, yeah. But then, so anyway, that's like that's kind of. Three weeks, whatever. Oh, no, what okay. I noticed about what I noticed about him, apart from the fact he's short, uh, is that he looks incredibly strained and stressed. And I'm thinking, you know, it's all taking a toll on you, all this. Yeah. But it's only 18 months later that he collapses in Central Park whilst running with Skill Cole, his Jamaican footballer yeah, friend, yeah, 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 and yeah. this cancer is diagnosed throughout his body. So obviously, then. Yeah. It's already seeping through. You feel. With him. It's Can't already with him. it's already there, you know? And then but there's a kind of little coda to this as well. Which is that of course he passes away May eighty one. And I go back there in February again, eighty three. Yeah. Because because the uh 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 they're about to release the posthumous album, Confrontation. Yeah, and um, I'm sort of I was going to write something for the Face magazine, in fact. Yeah, and and same thing. I wake up early, jet lagged, seven o'clock in the morning. I turn on the radio. First news item today: released from the release from the gun court, Michael Bernard, J.R. <laughs> Rastafari.
that was a, so that's the kind of profound experience, really. Right, right. We're still sat in this pub. I'm being serious with people listening to our conversation. So I'm going to ask you this. Hey, this guy is renowned, Bob Marley, is a mass of contradictions. He's super rich, yet he writes songs about the poor, champions the poor. He's mixed race. He's neither black nor white. He's mixed race. I could go through contradictions from A to Z tonight in here, Chris. What was your impression about him? Was he a mass of contradictions? How did you feel about no, Bob no, Marley? No, it was a mass of contradictions whatsoever. It seemed completely logical to me. And as Carl Jung says, all great truths must end in paradox. Well, that's good. That's good. So, you know, that he's like the personification of that in a way, to me. No, I, I, I mean, and that's the strength, you know, the mixed race thing, that's the strength, isn't it, really? You know, that he's, he's, he's from all tribes. Yes, indeed. For example, yeah. um, you know, he has, he's a, he's a, he's a prophet of Rastafari, yet he has Miss World as a girlfriend, yeah. a white Miss World as yeah, a girlfriend. Yes, Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, it's I, personally, I think that's, I like that. Yeah. When you mentioned Rastafari, what was Rastafarianism? He asks naively. Well, I what think, I think my, my response will be a bit naive because it seems to be Rastafari is whatever it wants to be, whatever it wants to be to any particular person. Uh, but it's about being yourself. It's based on the kind of origins of the of the Bible, the origins of the church, um, mixed with kind of mixed with uh, uh, Afri some African animism as well, yeah. and and it just does seem to always be. You know, you can kind of make it as you go along a bit, actually. Yeah. Although there will be, you know, there are hardcore practitioners who yeah. would disagree with that, you know. But yeah. it's, it's, it's really fundamentals of the Bible plus a bit more. Right. Well, And also the idea that Haile Selassie is God. Yes, indeed. Which, which is a tricky one. And I must say, I was with Lyndon Kwesi Johnson a few weeks ago. And someone was saying to him, well, what did you think? You know, you can't, uh, uh, I mean, you were at that time, same time as Bob. And he says, well, yeah, well, I just believe, did you believe in Rastafari? He says, well, I believed in most of the tenets of it, but I did have a hard time thinking that Haile Selassie was God. Yeah. And I think, you know, there was those kind of like, uh, uh, was it Don Letts and Dennis Morris made a record called Highly Unlikely. But, but, but I might be stoned to death leaving here for saying that. <laughs> but you, know, you never know. Yeah. I've said, I'm being serious. I've said to you a few times before, used to be an ed teacher. I used to be an ed teacher in <coughs> Manchester with a load of Rastafarian parents. And I got on really well with him. And as a practicing Catholic, I've got to tell you, Chris, it meant a lot to me, did Rastafarianism, because I could see great parallels between my faith and the Rastafarian faith, if I can call it that. Because it's Thai church. Absolutely. Spot on. Absolutely. Spot on, as David would agree, without bringing you in, David, to this. But why did it have such a massive effect upon Bob and upon the young Jamaican youth in the early 60s and beyond? What was all that about? It just seemed to hit the unconscious, didn't it? And it also... And also, and also, you know, there's all these people who are supposed to be prophets of Rastafari, like Marcus Garvey. He's not actually a prophet of Rastafari, but he said a lot of things, you know, he's looked to Africa where a king will be. But, but Marcus Garvey would never really claim to be a, a follower of Rastafari. But, you know, there's, what's the name, Lawrence... Uh, it's in my book, uh, but there's the there's the, the there's the Roll Lawrence Howe, right, who's the right. first the first Rasta, who who essentially set up this encampment called Pinnacle between Kingston and Spanish Town, the former capital, up in the mountains, and you know, they kind of lived really. This was in the 1930s, yeah. and they lived. Uh, by, you know, growing herb, but also growing, uh, you know, their own vegetables, their own, they, were, they didn't eat meat. There was about 2,000 of them living up there. Right. 
Now, this is like a big deal thing, but the, the authorities, I think part of the reason it hits such a nerve is because the authorities hated it so much. Why? It's kind of for the establishment. It's very straight in a way that you can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's like some England was in the 1950s. And they hate anything unconventional. So obviously the youth are attracted to that. Um, and they would meet out the horrendous punishments yeah. to, 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 I mean, like cutting the people's locks off, you know, I mean, beat people be badly beaten up. You mean, you saw Peter Tosh, who was like, you know, with Buddy Whaler, was the other member of the Whalers, was beaten to an inch of his life. You know, after he'd spoken up at the at the One Love Peace concert, you know he was he was caught coming out of a recording studio having a spliff in Halfway Tree, and uh, which is a midtown area, and, the, and you know, they they beat him. Bob Marley went to the hospital to try and get him out. Bob Marley was so shocked at the state of him that he cried. You know, he was beaten black and blue, and not the only time that happened to Peter Tosh. Because Peter Tosh was the man who would speak out. He was a yeah. militant. He was the Malcolm. He was like the Malcolm X of the Caribbean. Yeah. He was like very. He, he's a very good man, Peter Tosh. But I think they. I think they kind of killed him in the end. I mean, he was killed. Yes, indeed. In a home invasion. Yeah, but yeah. I think it was sort of. It was incessant. It never really stops. You know. No. no. So I don't know. I'm not really answering your questions. No, but no. I'm no. just saying they. They. I'm not just saying that the that the kind of establishment hated. Rastafari, it's almost like that's. I think that would have attracted people to it. Yeah. You say, I'm not really answering your question, but I'll tell you what you're doing, Chris. You're providing us with a context tonight for this brilliant album, and I thank you for that, and I'm going to ask you this. Yeah, they beat the crap out of Peter Tosh, but they tried to kill Bob Marley just before he recorded this album. Absolutely. Tell us something about that. What happened there? Okay, so Exodus. Oh, sorry, I'll just yeah, emphasise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just before this album is recorded. It's how, sorry, it's Chris. why this album is recorded here? Absolutely. As well. So, so really, so this this is nineteen. The album was recorded in in London in nineteen seventy seven. The first half. The previous year. The Rust the Man Vibration album had come out, which I think is a phenomenal record yeah. in this uh, just late spring. And and Bob Marley toured America with it, he toured Europe, he toured Britain, came here. Uh, and it's his it's his breakthrough record. Yes. It's a top ten album in America. Uh, so he's suddenly on another level. And it's like he's being seen as being on this other level by, you know, the powers that be. So Michael Manley, the Prime Minister, whose whose offices, by the way, are very very close to Fifty Six Hope Road, Bob's Bob's uh, uh, headquarters. Uh, uh, he asks to see him in October, I think it is, and he asks him if he will play, you know, because there's, because of the Civil War, you know, if if. Bob will play a concert for Jamaica to bring Jamaica together and also it'll attract tourism, etc. And it's scheduled for December the 5th. And um, as soon as Bob agrees to do this, and he also records this tune called Smile Jamaica, which is fantastic, because it's going to be called the Smile Jamaica concert. And as, almost as soon as he's agreed to do it, Michael Manley calls an election like two weeks after the concert. So it looks like Bob is endorsing <coughs> Manley's party, which is the PMP. The PMP is the People's National Party, which is kind of sort of left-wing. It's really kind of left-wing. And and, uh, and and Manley is a kind of old-style socialist, really. And he's mates with Castro as well, which is not so cool in the eyes of America. Uh, you know, he, Manley argues that... Third world countries, as they were then called, should ally with other third countries. It's completely logical, but you know America doesn't like this. And also, the the opposition party is the JLP, Jamaica Labour Party, which of course is classic Jamaica paradox because it's not really a Labour Party. It's like very you know pretty right wing, led by a guy called Edward Siaga. And so they're about to have this election, and Siaga really is the one who'd set up the gunman in Jamaican politics in the 60s. Siago's an old record businessman. He had West Indies record label. 
but but that means he's also in touch with kind of the street people as well. Right. But it's like under Siaga, the in the six mid sixties elections, gunshots start to be being unleashed. Uh, and and Manley sort of follows to an extent, but it's, it was Siaga who started all this. And Siaga, of course, significant is called, you know, on the graffiti in Kingston, it's like CIA Arga. So, you know, that's how he's perceived, you know, whether it's true or not, it, you know, it actually probably is true. Um, and um, so on December the 3rd, two days before this gig, three days, two days, two days, uh, 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 about 7.30 in the evening at 56 Hope Road, Bob and the whalers are rehearsing for it. They're having a little break, and Bob is peeling a, a grapefruit. Uh, which case, which point, Gunman burst in. He's in a little house at the back of the, the main house. And firing bullets at him. Several hit Don Taylor, his manager, who kind of, you know, does he leap in front of Bob or does he just happen to be... Uh, 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 hit. Uh, he probably did leap in front of him. And one bullet whizzes in a hazard because Bob is inhaling. Yeah. One bullet whizzes across Bob's chest and lodges in his arm, in his left arm, and is there actually till he dies, basically. Um, and uh, outside in the yard, Rita, his wife, is getting into her VW Beetle. She's just about to drive off. She doesn't really realise this stuff's going on. And so suddenly people are behind her firing bullets through her back window. One of them... Now, the story I always hear is it whizzed past her skull, just creased the edge of her skull. Now someone tells me, no, it actually was inside her skull. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, uh, this is this is what's going on. And then these guys who, who, who are kind of kids, they're like 16, look like they're 16, 15, 16, 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They look incredibly nervous. Uh, then they run, they disappear and they run off. Uh, they're, they're said to be, it, I don't know if you know Marlon James's book, A Brief History of Seven Killings, which won the Booker Prize three or four years ago. That's kind of hinges around that, Event. It's a huge book, actually, but the you know the central episode in it is like what really happened, and he he says exactly as as as, as I understood that it's like it was the shower posse who were kind of like they were they were uh, the gang from Tivoli Gardens, which was Edward Siaga, Edward Siaga's constituency where he was an MP constituency where he was an MP, yeah. So anyway, that kind of seems to be what happened. They led, and they were led by a guy called Jim Brown, yeah. not his real name. His real name is, his son's called Christopher Coke, something Coke, so say, okay. I mean, almost like Scratchberry once said, every man has a name for a purpose, and they were, were in the beginning of Coke trade. <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh, so, but that's all, that seems to be what happened. Now, interestingly, Chris Blackhall was supposed to have been there at... At, at, at 56 Hope Road, the guy who runs Island Records, at that point, exact time, but he's gone to see Scratch Perry, who's remixing a tune called Dreadlocks in Moonlight. I don't know if you've heard it, which yeah. is a magnificent record. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, anyway, naturally, Scratch is taking longer over it than he should, so that's why Chris Blackwell was never there. But just a little aside. So anyway, Bob does do, you know, he's he's rushed out of there, he goes up to the mountains, he's hidden away, um, and he says he's going to play the show. And so they come down the mountain, <coughs> and they go, you know, in, I mean, people, you know, Rita is still wearing her, you know, her hospital clothes on stage, and uh, there's this crowd of about 80,000 people, uh, and they play a show, and Bob kind of like shows his arm with the kind of bullet in it, the bandages around it. You know, but people think that he's going to play two or three songs. No, they do a full set. But straight after that, they're out of there to the airport and they get on a private plane. Bob and Neville Garrick, who is the art director, and and uh, they go straight to Nassau in the Bahamas, which is, you know, well, an hour or so away. Absolutely. You know, and then, and then they come to London. Uh, and that's how Exodus is recorded. Right. And it's literally called Exodus because, in the biblical sense of the Exodus. Yeah, that's what I was driving at. So that's great for you to say that. 
So those events had a massive impact on the recording of this album, what we've just heard over the last five minutes or so. No one was allowed to know that Bob was in London. Whoa, all the all the all you know all the I three. In fact, it's my friend Vivian Goldman's fault. Hey, she's, in, she's in Shepherd's our friend, Bush. Our friend, our friend, our friend, who's in Shepherd's Bush Market uh, in late March, and she runs into um, uh, uh, Neville Garrick and Carly, the drummer, uh, shopping for yams. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's how it, this, it leaps out. Leaks out then. And Bob is then busted for weed a few weeks, about yeah. a week later. So, so let's just emphasise that. After the assassination, Bob's hiding out. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. Bob's hiding out in London. 42 Oakley Street. You got it. Getting ready to record this album. And news of him being in London, which he doesn't want to leak out, comes out through Vivian Goldman. If I remember correctly, Chris... Through Sounds magazine, Absolutely. those of you remember that from music. The music is the message, as the strapline <laughs> used to be. Now, not many people remember that. I'll just break briefly, just to put me on in putting on. No, no, I'll just tell you this. I heard the other day. I heard the other day that a former pupil of mine, Ravel Morrison, used to play for Man U, West Ham. He's been playing out in the states. This is to do with what um, Chris has just said. He'd been playing with Wayne Rooney out in Washington, D.C. But his granddad, who was a mate of mine, ran me the other day, he said, Bill, which is my real name, as we know, he, um, he said, Ravel's career is over. I think he's had it now. And I'll tell you that because he got involved with a gang in Moss Side. This is what, I'm telling you this is fact, not what I think. He got involved with a gang in Moss Side called the Gooch who are fearsome. I'm all right, sat in here tonight. And no, they're fearsome. You've no idea what these guys are like, and they are guys. But whenever I used to speak to parents about the gooch, they'd always say this, ah, shower posse. And they'd talk, because they saw the gooch as shower posse. And that's why Ravel's career is over. But I'll say this to you. You just mentioned Chris Blackwell. Richard, you'd be interested in this. When we were driving down, I'm being serious, Rich. When we were driving down here tonight, if you don't mind me breaking confidences, Chris said... I don't, uh, I don't know. Uh, well, <laughs> Chris said, he said, I'm not wearing any wife fronts. <laughs> just came out. No, <laughs> he said, he said, Rich, he said, hey, Chris Blackwell... The home, a great mate of him, has uh, invited me out to Goldeneye, where Ian Fleming used to live, because Chris owns it. Now, the reason I mention that, Chris, is loads of people say, as you know, the person who broke Bob Marley, who really broke him internationally, was Chris Blackwell. I mean, neither Peter Tosh nor Bunny Whaler who were the original whalers who were doing Catch a Fire and all the great albums of the 70s, they don't appear on this at all. So I'm asking you this. Who the heck is Chris Blackwell and how did he have such a massive, massive effect on Bob Marley's career and the colossal success of this album? Bang. Because he's, he's just a very cool guy who kind of like... He, like uh, his story about the Bob is that um, The Harder They Come had just come out, right. the film. I don't know if you've seen The Harder They Come, the story of ghetto life in, in, in Kingston with Jimmy Cliff as the lead character. When's the uh, time wise? 72. She... Sorry, right, this right, is 72. Right, right, May, it, was, it, was, it, it, it opened in May 72 in Jamaica and it was like October 72 in the UK. But it, it transforms Jimmy Cliff, who is an island artist. Chris Blackwell's been nurturing him for years. An island is Chris Blackwell's label. An island is Chris Blackwell's label. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and, um, uh, and so this is the moment. As Chris Blackwell said, well, he'd see perfect, actually. You know, this character, this bad guy that he's created, this outlaw hero. And then, then Jimmy Cliff says, "Actually, I want to leave the label here. I've given me a much better deal." <laughs> Bloody hell! And then a week later, Bob Marley walks into the office. And he says, "This is just at the time I'm thinking 
we can do something with a character like this. But, but, but Jimmy Clinton's sort of been acting the character, really. Yeah. And Bob Marley seems to be the real thing. Whoa, that's incredible. Bob Marley, incidentally, not many people know this, had been offered the role of, that, that, that Jimmy Cliff eventually I took in The Harder They Come. Flipping but actually, it was, and, and, and Perry Hensel, the director, spent a couple of weeks with him. Uh, but then decided he was a little bit too introverted, in fact. Right. But that's just a little aside. Yeah. But anyway, and then, yeah, yeah, essentially that's what happens. And, 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 and Bob Marley walks into Chris Blackwell's office with the other two, actually. But he says this is the, you know, he knew he could break this guy. He thought he could break this guy uh, uh, in, in, in kind of popular music. And gives them $8,000 dollars. US dollars to go to uh, Kingston and make an album and come back with it. And lots of people told me he'd never see the money again. And the line about the whalers was, as he, he, as he said, he said, people would just say, oh, they're trouble, these guys. And he said, but as far as I'm concerned, when people say people are trouble, it usually means they know what they want. Oh, that's good. And so you're asking him how, how why did he manage yeah, to break yes, it? And yeah. he poured lots of money in. He poured, he was at least half a million dollars. By, had gone into Bob Marley by the time Rastaman Vibration broke. Yeah. And people were telling him he was crazy, still telling him he was crazy, yeah. in his own company. It's always strange that people in your own company tell you this, but, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but they think they do. Um, and that's kind of how... And he just kept underwriting him and underwriting, and he, and, he, and he got it. And he would always say, we weren't like the best friends. I didn't go to hang out with him, you know what I mean? I was like, we'd work professionally together, and he just understood. He knew that I, I, I had his best intentions in my mind, always. Right. So that's what happened, really, and he just yeah. kept putting the money in. And the thing, for example... Uh, he, Don Taylor, who was, became the manager, Don Taylor was a Jamaican guy who was like a... He was one of the guys who had dived for coins from the ships, from the cruise ships that came in. Yeah. But as, as Chris Black was said, he was the first one of those guys who owned a suit. Right? right? Yeah, so yeah, he's yeah. got something going for him. Yeah. And so he somehow manages to get to the United States, yeah. Don Taylor, and he's working with various acts. He's working with... And he comes down with Marvin Gaye, who, as his tour manager... The not Marvin manager, Gaye. yeah. Marvin yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's playing the National Stadium in Kingston with the Whalers. Right, right. Well, you know, they're supporting. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and Bob... And Don Taylor, the next morning, goes up to 56 Hope Road, as I've been, uh, and, um, and says, I'll manage you. And Chris Pratt was said, And Bob agrees... And Chris Pratt says, that was fantastic because what I had to get was Bob Marley on the road because when people saw him live, they knew how fantastic he was. But if I hadn't got, there was no one to kind of get him to do this, I didn't know what I was going to do. And Don Taylor did a fantastic job. Right. I mean, Don yeah. Taylor may have been tricky in other ways from yeah, time to time, but absolutely. he did, he got, he was, he was a very important figure. So two things come out of that, Chris. Why wasn't Bob going on the road? Why did he have to? Why did Chris Blackwell have to have Don pushing Bob into going on the road? Why wasn't Bob? Because in... because it was because first of all, Jamaican acts really didn't do that. Right. This is a new thing. He's oh, told right. the Whalers, the Whalers, the three piece Whalers. This is what you're doing. This three, you know, you like a, you're behaving like an old Motown act, right. guys in suits, harmony of vocal. This is old fashioned. Right. People don't want this anymore. And to explain that, people didn't tour in, in Jamaica hardly at all. You know, see, the yeah. North Coast, the North Coast hotel circuit, uh, they would do it. Um, and so, and, and also, one of the reasons that it's so expensive promoting uh, Bob Marley at first because they all got to come up from Jamaica. Right. It's, it's very just the flights alone oh, are right, very expensive. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this, you know, it's. it's Anyway, that, but that was kind of organising the whole thing. So you yeah. needed, needed someone who could knew how to do it. And Don did that. For Don Chris Taylor Blackwell. knew how to do so it. So significant. Yeah. Let me ask you this. I don't know how many people are old enough to remember this. Do you remember in the early 70s when the Whalers first appeared on our television screens and all, the old grey whistle test that night? Man, what Fantastic. a night that was. You know, Fantastic. Everybody, I'm saying everybody, a load of people are nodding, you know, yeah. That was just amazing that night. It was. Peter Tosh, Bunny Whaler, Bob there. I mean, it was just stunning. But then, 
what happened to Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler? Because they're not on this album, and they'd left the Whalers before this took place. How come such a significant band, and we were all nodding 30 seconds ago, how come the two major elements in that band, Peter Tosh, Bunny Whaler, disappeared? <laughs> what happened there? Because, because t- Bunny is, is, doesn't want to... First, Bunny just doesn't want to tour. Bunny, Bunny doesn't go, don't want to go on an iron bird, as he puts it. Um, uh, uh, and Peter is sort of completely equivocal. Sometimes he wants to do it, sometimes he doesn't. Can't make up his mind out. That's really what happened. And Bob just said, I've got to just go and do this on my own. I can't do it with them. Right. So that's, what, that's actually what happened. I see. I see. Well, time is moving on. I know, Rev. So I'll just ask this last one. Then we'll watch some film, if that's all right, before the break. Let me ask you this. Time magazine, you know, that great magazine in the States, hugely recognised magazine in the States, said that Exodus was the album of the 20th century, the greatest album of the 20th century, and that's Time magazine, not some cheap magazine, pulp magazine, one of the great magazines of the earth, said that Exodus was the album of the century. What do you think justified that comment, Chris? I was quite surprised. <laughs> Hold on, just build up to that question. Hey, hey, what's it? Let's, let, let, let's relive that moment. Let's relive that moment. That was a sensation. Well, excuse rather. me. What do you think was behind that? I don't know, you prat. I'm trying to earn a living here. <laughs> Because, because, it, because it, obviously they see it as this absolute archetypal, iconic piece. And they're looking, you know, they're, frankly, they're kind of looking for something as well. We know that. But it does fit. It does tick all the boxes, doesn't it? Because it's like the first half is this kind of political uh, uh, songs of kind of like oppression and re- deep reflection, looking back on what's happened to him. You know, just a month or so ago, he's been shot. People yeah, are trying to yeah, kill him. Yeah. Uh, and then the other side is, is is the episode. It's kind of classic yin yang. It's the kind of love songs and the love stories. And so, so it's a record that starts in absolute despondency, and and emerges in a kind of personal triumph with the tune "One Love" at the end of it all. Yeah. That's so cool. I, I, you know, as a kind of archetypal piece. I guess it ticks all the boxes for them, and it does. T- it would tick it for me because what else we go? You know, you could choose a Beatles album, but they're a little bit too specific. Yeah, they don't embrace kind of everything in the way yeah. that, that that Exodus does. That's a good. That's a good answer. That. What about this? I said it was the last one, but what about this? Honor and I often watch the news, and where your beliefs have nothing to do with me, and hopefully I'm not going to get out my depth, and you might have some sympathy with this, but. When you see these bloody refugees coming across in the dinghies and they're taking all jobs and, you know, well, Honor and I have enormous sympathy with these refugees and their situation and we welcome them. And I mention that because, for me, this album says, yes, we're all in this together. And this is... Absolutely. Why don't I shut up and listen to you? No, 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 absolutely. I agree with you entirely. Absolutely, and I agree with that entirely. So, if we're sat in pub just before we have a pint, isn't this a fantastic album in terms of what's going on at the moment, in terms of proclaiming, yes, we're all in this together and we will all make the exodus together as one? Good, absolutely. No, and, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, a lot of people disagree with me. As far as I'm concerned, anyone could come here. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll get beaten up at half time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know what was going to happen there? Don't you think, Chris, that we're all here as one? No. <laughs> I know. I could just see that coming. Shall we have some film, Rev? Yeah, I think it's a bit like Wild Western here tonight, so I, I think we'll have Eyes Shot the Sheriff, wouldn't you? Sure. <laughs> After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q&A. OK, so it is that time. Well, I was talking about earlier on. I go to the bog, you're in the pub, 
and one of you thinks, I'm going to go across to Salvitz and ask him some questions. What's the first one? Any question at all, he'd love to answer it, I'm sure. Yes, sir. I just want to know where his passion from, for football came from, because you've mentioned it a few times. Ajax fans sing Three Little Birds quite a bit, and they've got a shirt with Three Little Birds on the back, basically, but it's pretty cool. Of course. Um, it's important, yeah. Uh, they, they, he was playing football when he lived... He grew up in Nine Miles. It's called Nine Miles because it's Nine Miles from anyone else. Up in the, up in the mountains, it's north north central Jamaica and you know the kids would just play football with kind of like an old grapefruit skin or whatever at first and then but they, but he was always very keen on it uh, and uh, and there was some talk at one point of oh should Bob be should Bob be a musician or should be a football player now the question is like is this just in retrospect that people are saying this and was Bob really any good as a football player well, people say he was quite good, but people have played with him. Like, for example, when he was making the Exodus album, see, all sort of circular. When he's making the Exodus album, the reason they stay where they do by uh, 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 Albert Bridge is because it's just across the Thames from um, Battersea Park, where he would play football every morning. And um, but people have actually said, well, everyone just used to get, let Bob have the ball. So. <laughs> <laughs> On the, on the other hand, but that might not be entirely true. So, so it could be just sort of that could just be jealousy, of course. But he would, he would certainly have. Uh, he was a big Spurs fan on account of Ozzy Ardiles, oh. and would have match of the day would have to be sent out to him wherever he was. Um, on of his clearly early video players. Not many people have video players in those days. Although, in fact, and this is just something I will... Although Mick Jones of The Clash did have one, and the reason I'm saying this is because, because I've just said to Bill that when, that when um, that Bob had come to see them at the, uh, see the Clash at the Rainbow, and a few weeks later he said to me, he, says, he said, well, we gave him tickets for our show, but he didn't give us for any for his. <laughs> <laughs> Mick's VCR was stolen while they were on the on parole tour. But anyway... So he would have a, a, a very early... They're clunky things. They're like washing machines, those early VCRs. And a lot of clunking went on. But anyway, so tapes would be sent out to him. And um, his, of course, his close friend was Skill Cole, who played for Jamaica and played for... Was it Santos? I think he played for Santos in Brazil. Wow. Um, he, and he was, he was good. Although when I went round to interview... Skill coal. It was over. It was eight o'clock in the morning, and he was standing outside his place in Vineyard Town, which is sort of midtown Kingston, with a chalice, which is a giant pipe of weed, and two jockeys in perfect jockey uniform, all participating in this. So I don't know how this would have. I don't know how this would have. I don't know how this would have, how this would have affected his play. Anyway. But they were him, Bob, were very good mates. Well, that and also, actually, was... there is a bit I can add to this. In fact, about Skill Cole, because when Bob, you know, he's in Paris, that's when the foot's injured. However, Skill Cole, who's living in Africa, then he's gone on the run after the Bob shooting because it was rumoured at first that the shooting was to do with a, a, a race course fix that Skill Cole had perpetrated at Kingston's Caymanus racetrack. I don't think it's actually true. However, he's like told, get out of the way, and I think he goes to Ethiopia. But when when Bob plays Paris, so that's six months later, five months later, uh, Skill Cole turns up and he says, and Bob says to him, you're going to find out that everyone everyone has turned superstar now. And, and Skill Cole sort of added that, you know, that people think that... You know, they're cause, because they're next to the prof. They're next to the prophet, so they become a prophet too. So anyway, that's just something to think about. So I don't know what it means about the football. <laughs> um, Jason, you've got a question. Chris Blackwell, did did he shape Bob's sound after signing with Ireland, or or was the the development of the the rock edge? Did he change his sound? Yeah. Yeah. 
He did. Um, the first person who changed Bob's sound was Scratch Perry, who does those, he does in uh, 69, 70, he does those two albums, what are they called, African Herbsman and, well, they could have dead, the names changed, they changed the names a bit, didn't they? When Rasta Revolution, uh, or Soul, Soul Revolution, one of them became African Herbsman, I can't remember what the other, Trojan put them out. But, 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 so Scratch gets that kind of rock guitar sound, and it was slightly psychedelic rock guitar sound. And, but Chris Blackwell enhances that, and for, for example, Catch a Fire, when they've recorded it in Kingston, and you could hear the, well, there was a version 20 years ago or so of Catch a Fire, where there's the, the version that was finished at Basing Street, Island Studios, Basing Street in Notting Hill, and the original one that they finished in Kingston. And, they, for example, they had this guy, Wayne Perkins, who was a southern American rock guitarist who was all actually up for the Rolling Stones gig at one point. Did Robert you play on Let It Bleed, Wayne Perkins? Probably. He's on Black and Blue. He's on Black, Black and, and Blue. That's what I meant. Yeah, he's on Black and Blue. Just wondered if you'd spot that one, Wilson. <laughs> he's on Black and Blue. So, anyway, he's on that. Uh, there's keyboards put on by uh, Rabbit Bundrick, who was previously been in what sharks but he'd been around bob actually for some time as, as a matter of fact. and then later with the who in fact and what else is on there there's other stuff there's bits and pieces sweet yeah so the sound is 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 enhanced but i think i don't think in a bad way but yeah so obviously yeah and it's made because he wants to get over to a white rock audience mm. and hendrix is the model Next question, please. I've got one. You got one? So, well, I think we know what The Clash felt about Bob Marley. What did he feel about The Clash? Well, he did, he did, uh, you know, when he first comes to London, there's the famous story, like Don Letts goes around there wearing his bondage trousers. Right, tell us. And, and, so, <laughs> and, so, and so Bob says, well, you look like one of them nasty, stinky, bonky people. And Don gives him uh, his rap about, you know, that, 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 that punks are sort of outsiders in the same way that dreads are outsiders and it's all, they're all rebels together, you've got to understand this, blah, blah, blah. And Bob is not initially convinced. But, but, he, is, but he does seem to become more, definitely becomes more convinced because on the, on the, cause it's June, July, it's July, isn't it? They do Punky Reggae Party with Scratch Perry, who's come up to produce The Clash's complete control tune. And um, and they do a uh, punky reggae party at Ireland, in Ireland's rehearsal studios, I think. It's not the, it's not a Basing Street, it's in St Peter's Square in Hammersmith. And uh, where the lyrics are, the jam, the, you know, punky reggae party, blah, 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 the jam, the clash, the feel-goods too. Ah, and so that so to me, that's what I thought was the most perceptive thing was that Bob Bob sussed or someone had pointed out to him anyway the the the, the historic legacy of the doc, of Doctor Feelgood that's in brilliant. punk. Yeah. Anyway, he was someone might point it out to him, but it's quite good if he spotted himself. Someone may have told him. Very good. Peace. Yeah. Another question, please. Yes, Amanda, please. You said that Peter Tosh was like the Malcolm X of Jamaica. Would you say that Bob Marley was like Martin Luther King to the Malcolm X and he was all about bringing everybody together in a peaceful, sort of spiritual way rather than, you know, doing twos up like Peter Tosh with his reefer on stage? Yeah, and yeah. and do, you, do you think when you met him and you said that he seemed really tired, do you think that was possibly the pressure of having to be this icon for people, the spiritual... Well, well, I think that was the pressure of doing that. That's what I immediately thought, of course. And it probably was that. But I think that the cancer was there all along. And I think that would have exacerbated it. Because he looked really strained. Did you, know you, I mean? did you feel he was, like, happy? Or did you, did you feel like there was a sense of he was trying to do something impossible, like bring people together... And everything was just all about guns and fighting and beating and ripping each other off. Do you think that? No, was I don't think. I think he was trying to remove himself from all, yeah. from all that that element, which was very. It was very heavy. Yeah. In in Jamaica and Kingston, particularly at that time, 
So um, I think that he was trying to step away from that. He didn't want to be part of that. But those, but he he had to be. You know, there were those gunmen around him all the time. You know, then you couldn't really <coughs> say you can't come round, guys. You know? So when you rocked up as a young reporter, sort of a white guy in the middle of all that, was it not terrifying? To some degree. Well, I'd already been there the previous year. I right. probably got over that bit. And you had the big spliff, so... I did it. Well, yeah, about that. <laughs> I know, but that might have been... Yeah. That might have been what I shouldn't have been having, actually, at the time. But, but as to apropos of, of Peter and Bob... Yeah, Bob was... More, I mean, people have said this before, that Bob was more like Martin Luther King to Peter's whole thing. But Peter was kind of... Peter was very impressive. Mm. I mean, I mean, there were the, these. There was this in, in is it '68 or '69. I think it's '68. There was what was called the Walter Walter Rodney riots. And Walter Rodney was a Guyanese lecturer at the University of the West Indies in Kingston, very left wing. Um, uh, and he'd gone, but he also there's a book of his. his it's called his Reasonings with the Rastas. He kind of got it. Mm -hmm. um, but he went to Canada to do a talk somewhere, and uh, then they wouldn't let him back into the country. And there was a huge, this was a huge deal, about three or four people were killed. And Peter, one of the things that Peter did was he hijacked a bus. It's probably a minibus, you know, but it might not have been. But in the, in the stories, he hijacks a bus and drives it into a department store window and tells everyone to take whatever they want to guess, and then reverses it out and drives it off down to Trenchdown and leaves it there. And the police did try and come and get him, but he managed to avoid them somehow. But he was like, Bob wouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah that's like serious, that's a very, I mean, it's actually so, so absurd, it's almost surreal. Yeah. But, but and, and, and it almost makes you smile, but it's actually very, it's a very dangerous thing to do, in fact. And so Peter is like flirting with danger all the time. I mean, even in his own life, I mean, he had a terrible car accident. You know when he killed his girlfriend in in '75. You know, so he's kind of a little bit out there on the edge all the time. But when I met met him, which was that first trip there in '78, he was by far the coolest person yeah. I'd come across in Jamaica. I mean, he was like, you know, he was an energy, this an aura that kind of palpably bounced off him. So there should uh, be a film of his life for sure, and shouldn't yeah, I think be? there was. I think <laughs> they were. I think they were trying to. I think they were trying to do one. Well, that's that, that, that Wayne Jobson did, yeah, which is quite pretty good. Do you know they're trying to make a Bob Marley movie at the moment called Exodus? Oh, right. Who's um, trying to make it? Is anything it's being, made, it's oh, being done. Oh, it's oh. being done. And it's the guy who made... <coughs> the director is the guy who made the uh, the film about... The, it was got the Academy Award last year about the, 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 uh, the father of the Williams sisters, the tennis players. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing it, and they've and they've recreated Fifty Six Hope Road has been recreated at the top of Kingston, exactly as it is, and that's what they were just doing. They were just shooting it. They were doing the London stuff. Oh, that's exciting. So that's kind of interesting. Thank you. Did I answer your question? Did I answer that? Yeah, okay. I think you did. That's brilliant. Okay, I'm not sure. Rev, it's twenty five past, and I always do what I'm told. Have we got another? Just one quick one. Of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, Chris, I'm. Really interested in Bob's uh, style of songwriting, or what's his modus operandi, if you like, for songwriting? Did he take himself away and then just come back with a bunch of songs, or was it stuff on the road? <laughs> I know? think a lot of his stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. People talk about how late at night, if you're passing Bob's room on tour, you'd hear him, his guitar playing, and his voice. And a lot of stuff was written. You know, a lot of stuff was written late at night. And, you know, Rita would say that thing, there's a, I can't remember what the biblical quote is, but it's like, you know, the, you know, the kind of great men do this stuff while every people are sleeping. And so I think he just kept at it, and, and he would try and write a song every day. And, you know, but, you know, Junior Marvin said that, you know, every, every, you know, he'd write 100 songs, but only 10 or 15 would be used. Yeah. The rest would be all sort of dumped. But because their they're work's in progress, they're getting there. So a lot of it is done late at night. Bob didn't sleep very much. He would stay up with that. He was, you know, a lot of it's fueled by weed. 
and just staying up all night, and then you would get up early in the morning and go for a run as well. And you were privileged to see these songs come to to light, if you like, in the, in the studio. You know, well, the, the rehearsals. Bit, and, bit, yeah. So, was there a lot? Of, was there any element of improvisation? You know, he'd go in there and say, "I've got the core of a song." Oh, I wasn't that close enough to see that. Right. I wasn't close right. enough to see that. Thank you. So, the last question of the night is, approximately, how many spliffs did you have with Bob, <laughs> with Bob Marley? <laughs> not so many. Get away, come on. No, not so many. <laughs> You've been absolutely brilliant, you two, and we can't thank you enough, can we? So, let's have a... A thunderous round of applause. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good night. God bless you. Cheers, Rev. And happy and trails. trails. trails.